qualifies this morning. It is a communion Sunday. It is the first Sunday of the month of September. It is uh, also our uh, elections month and our we'll have our annual meeting uh, coming in a, uh, a little while, in a few weeks here. And uh, Lord willing, we will be uh, continuing to uh, operate. Hey, one of the things that uh, as we go along here, um, it's also almost voting time. It is on the political scale. It's a time that we should, we here in this church, encourage people to be involved politically. Because even though there's some churches that don't and think that we should be set apart from that, that is utter nonsense. We are to be, we are in the world, but we're not to be of it, but still we are to influence it. And it's working. Many people have gotten this message and school boards are changing for the good, for the better. They're fighting against us. <laughs> they don't like us, but they are, there are some changes that are happening. And it is causing the uh, people who were in power very, very much consternation. They are not happy with the things that we're doing and the pressure that we're applying to them. And the crazy thing is, if you watch any of the videos of any of these uh, meetings, is the hypocrisy, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, today's message is, is uh, titled, The Dangers of Spiritual Hypocrisy. But those people at those school board meetings, the hypocrisy that's there is just unspeakable. The main problems that people are starting to have with the schools and what their indoctrination processes are, are very simple. They're protesting, if you will, against these pornographic books that are allowed in the schools. And they're not just allowed in the schools they're also promoted for the children to read. And we are talking very pornographic books. They leave little to the imagination. And what do I mean by that? Well, they don't just leave it in writing. They actually have illustrations on how to perform these things, how to do these things. And we're talking about little children. It's creeping into the three, four, five-year-olds. Yes, they're encouraging them to disturb, to pervert, to um, confuse their minds. And Christian parents and just parents who are parents, who love their kids, know that this is wrong. Even if they're not Christian, they're going to these things. So uh, the, the hypocrisy is this, is people will begin. I watched a, um, a video with Pastor John Amwanchuko. He's a very influential uh, black pastor in the, in the black uh, uh, community and further east. And all he was doing was reading his excerpts from certain books that he is against because he doesn't want his children having to encounter these things. He was kicked out of the meeting, a pastor. Police dragged him out. And he's done this more than once. And that's the hypocrisy. Is they, 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 we, we need to be quiet. We can't be reading that kind of stuff here. This, there's, there's children here. That's the point. There's children involved. 
And they shouldn't be hearing this stuff. Even their own outcry tells them of their hypocrisy. That it's okay to be in the, in the uh, school libraries and in the library, the public libraries, and it, it's okay to encourage the children to read these things, but it's not okay for adults, for the most part, to hear them. And why is that? Because people will know. Because we're exposing the darkness. We're exposing the perversion. We're exposing the, the defilement that is being promoted amongst the school teachers. And we need to fight back against that politically. We should be involved. And so it is that political season. There are some primaries that are coming up this week um, in different places for different things. Um, hopefully you've been doing some homework, checking out the, the politicians. And granted, you go to their website and it tells you nothing. It's just a bunch of words. has no meaning, doesn't tell you where they stand on anything. They just want to promote humanity. And so you can't tell who stands for what. And so you almost have to call them out face-to-face -face or send a, a, an email, a personal email. Um, anyways, we're going to be talking a little bit about hypocrisy today because here we are in Isaiah 48, and we'll be trying to get through verses 1 through 8. And uh, here, God, in uh, our previous uh, last week's message, God was focused on... Babylon, and how he was going to judge them for all of the stuff that they had done, even though he had called upon them to be a judgment against his people. And he switches, all of a sudden, Isaiah, his focus is back onto Israel, the people of Israel. And in this particular instance, it's God calling out spiritual hypocrisy. And so as we read this, as we go through this, let us remember that God knows everything. God knows our hearts. And it's, it's one of the most um, used, uh, I don't know how used phrases that's in Christianity. It's one of the Christianese things when people are um, doing questionable things. Um, when, when people are involved in things that they hadn't, ought to be involved in, and uh, they try to excuse it away by saying, well, well, God knows my heart. I know I'm doing this, but God knows my heart. That's one of the craziest, dangerous attitudes to have, because the heart is exceedingly wicked, and it's incurably so. That's what the Bible tells us. We shouldn't be following our hearts, and people do. Um, before we go into the message, I want, I, want to, I want to share this with you because it's a, it's a part of my childhood. Um, I remember growing up in, in Habern, Idaho. Um, when, we, when I was a, uh, in school, elementary school, um, I remember growing up in that part of the world where you had this mix of, of people, and there was a pretty good size uh, amount of LDS people that were there, that, were, that I grew up amongst. And it was a good kind of a mix. It wasn't one predominant thing, but it was Christians, it was Catholics, it was um, the LDS. It was a, it was a good mix of, of people. But I remember every once in a while, we'd get into this religious jargon, this religious argument, if you will, or debate. And 
what would happen would uh, eventually one of the LDS kids, and this was way back in the 70s, mind you, early 80s, we're, we're talking quite a ways back, that they would say, well, you know, we are we're Mormons. And they would tell us, we're not Christian. And that was what they were teaching. That's what their churches at the time were teaching. I remember this distinctly as a child. We would have this debate because they would say, we are not Christians, we are Mormon. And we would retort, we are Christians. And we're Protestant Christians. I had no idea what that meant. But I knew it. Growing up in a Christian home, I knew that had something to do with what I was. And the reason I'm sharing this story, it's not about the debate of, of LDS versus Christianity or vice versa. The reason I'm sharing it with, uh, with you is because I really believe that. They really believe that. Even though we didn't really understand. We didn't really have a knowledge of what it was that we were declaring. And it's the same instance that we're having here as God describes His own people. He's beginning to... to uh, um, explain to them how he's going to bless them while at the same time exposing them. And that is one of the things that, that God does. He doesn't hold back. If you think about Isaiah chapter 6, or early on in, in Isaiah, where um, when he uh, has this, this encounter, this amazing uh, encounter with uh, that Isaiah has, and he just simply says that, uh, come, and, and the word of the Lord comes to, to Isaiah, and he says, come, let us reason together. Let's talk this out. Let's, let's have a one-on-one, -on -one God and the sinner. He says, come, let us reason together. Even though your sins are as red as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. The point being, God doesn't hold back. Jesus doesn't hold back in the New Testament. He speaks to the crowd and He calls them out as sinners, that they need to repent. That's how He opened up His ministry, right? He's in the middle of this crowd. There's a lot of people that are flowing around Him. And what does He say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's not talking to just one individual. He's talking to everybody around Him. The entire uh, population, he's saying, repent. What is he doing? He's calling them sinners. They have need for repentance. And here, God is doing the same thing. He's on the one hand exposing their hypocrisy, their spiritual hypocrisy. And they really, in a sense, they believed what they were saying. But in another sense, they were insincere. Which sounds crazy, but God is exposing it. And so therefore the title of The Dangers of Spiritual Hypocrisy. Today we're going, to, um, we're going to participate in remembering the death of Jesus as we do communion. And it's one of the things that, that uh, Paul warns about when we go into 1 Corinthians. We're going to see, Paul says, he says this, and he admonishes people and says, examine yourself. And he gives a reason why you should examine yourself. In another place, Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're of the faith. In other words, 
you may think that you genuinely are when you are not. And we'll talk about that today. So if you uh, will join me with the, in, in which, um, uh, with where we're at in Isaiah, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 48, and we'll read through verse 8. So let us, let us begin. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh, or the Lord, and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city, and they lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I declare the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass, because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is as an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. He doesn't hold back. He's honest. Therefore, I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you. Lest you should say, my idol has done them. My graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard... Look at all this, and you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago, and before today you have not heard them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago your ear has not been opened because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your declarations. We thank you that you are our God and King, that you are he who is enthroned in the heavens, and the heavens cannot contain you, that every morning is a new morning, with new mercies and new compassions. And so we thank you. We also thank you, Lord, that you are holy and righteous and good and that you call us out in that time of need. You call us out and you display a love that is beyond comprehension. As I've said many times from this pulpit and from many different places, what it is about us that you love, I don't understand. When we think of who and what we are in comparison with the glory, the wonder, the splendor, the perfection, the holiness and the righteousness that is Christ Jesus our Lord, who can understand why you love us? But you do. And so we thank you. We thank you for these great truths that are written within Holy Writ. That we can know you, and we can seek you, and we can desire you, and we can know that you have fulfilled all the things that are necessary that we might be forgiven and redeemed. 
We thank you, Lord, for all of these things and more. We pray now open up our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to these great truths that you would be glorified and exalted and that you might change hearts and do that great surgery that only you can do, exchange hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. Do what you do, Lord, for you are capable and able and you're the only one who can. So we're relying upon you. Like the song that we sang just a little bit ago, Lord, we need you. Oh, how we need you. Every hour we need you. So we need you now, Lord. Open up our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to these truths in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So he begins by saying, hear this, O house of Jacob. Now this is an interesting thing, an interesting way. He's commanding them to listen. Hear this. Don't be mistaken. Hear this, O house of Jacob. What is the house of Jacob? Well, Jacob is the name that the usurper was born with, the supplanter, the liar, the cheat, the thief, if you will. Jacob is the name that was given to one of the children of Isaac. And he was the younger, and God spoke of him before he was born. And this is the physical name. He's the supplanter. So he says, listen to this, O Jacob, who are named Israel. And Israel, of course, is that spiritual name. As we went through our uh, time in Genesis, if you remember, when, um, when God had this encounter, and Jacob had this encounter with, with this angel, and he was going to wrestle with him, God said, who or what is your name? You remember that? What is your name? And all along, there's these, there's these prayers and there's these things that Jacob offered up. And in every instance up until this moment, it was always the God of my father Abraham. The God of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. He was always another God that he was calling upon. But in this instance... When his name changed, it was the one time that he called upon his God. This is the one time in the one place in the Old Testament where, where you see this switch all of a sudden. We noticed that when we were going through our overview, that he, he switched and he went from, from the God of my fathers to now you're my God. He had changed. Something had happened within him. And God calls him out and says, what is your name? What is your name? He'd heard that before. And before, he lied. And he said, Esau. Esau's my name. And this time, God is like God is calling him to account and say, are you ready to tell the truth and not live in this hypocrisy and this lie? And he says, as God asks, what is your name? Jacob responds, Jacob is my name. He responds truthfully and honestly. And so here you have this, this contrast. O house of Jacob, the physical, the non-spiritual, the supplanter. And then you have who are named Israel. Well, who named him Israel? The Lord God Almighty. And that's what God does. He changes who we are. He changes our identities. When He transforms us. There's a reason why it says that we're to be transformed. 
There's a reason why Jesus said you must be born again. Because you're given a new identity. Hugo's no longer Hugo of the old. He's a new Hugo. Marnay's a new Marnay. Chris is a new Chris. Dennis is a new Dennis. Corey's a new Corey. Joseph is a new Joseph. We're not the same as we used to be. We're different. God has changed us. And then he asks this question, or he says, Who came forth from the loins of Judah? Another implication of things that he's going to do in the future. Most of the commentaries are kind of in agreement here, because we know that Jacob didn't come from Judah. This was before that time. And because Jacob actually gave life to Judah. So what does this mean, who comes forth from the loins of Judah? Well, it's a spiritual aspect. It's something that God was going to do in the future. He's hinting at someone that was going to come who would be the spiritual Israel. And I'll let you figure out who that is. And then he says, who swear by the name of Yahweh and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city, and they lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. And remember this designation. The Lord of hosts is a military term. It's like saying the captain of the host. He's this military God, this mighty warrior God. The final urgent appeal was designed to lead deaf and blind Israel and to recognize God's way in the creation of history. As he's going through this, he is reminding them that they're, they're uh, calling upon him still. Now, where's the hypocrisy? Well, they were idolaters. They were idolatrous. They were praying to idols. They were giving sacrifices to them. They were making these things and still calling upon the name of the Lord. And remember, this is talking about their time that they would be spending in Babylon, which was yet 150 years approximately before it was actually going to happen. He's reminding them ahead of time of all the things that will take place. And he's saying, and this is where the hypocrisy comes in, and this is why I mentioned that story that I opened up with. When I would have these, or we would have these debates between us and, and the LDS kids um, there on the school grounds, we honestly called upon ourselves as Christians. They called themselves Mormons because that's what they really believed. That's what they had been taught. And we had been taught that we were Christians. We were Protestant Christians. And we really believed that. And we called upon the name of the Lord. We called upon God. And we were sincere. Except we were doing so without real godly knowledge. That's just the way it was. And this is what they were doing. They were swearing by the name of the Lord. And by the way, if you look in Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 19, I believe it is, or maybe it's 1019, I can't remember. It's in Deuteronomy, where God tells His people, when He brings them into the land, one of the things that He's going to do is He's going to give them cities that are already made, that they didn't make. He's going to give them 
vineyards, fields, and give them produce that they didn't plant. He's going to give them fruit trees that they didn't make the orchards. He's going to do all these things. And he says, and in that day, when I bring you into this land, one of the things that you will do is when you swear, you will swear by the name of the Lord. And so they were still doing that, even in their captivity. And so he says, they swear by the name of Yahweh. And they were supposed to, if they were, were to swear, and to invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth and righteousness. What does that mean? It means that there was spiritual hypocrisy. They were playing at being religious. They were religious, but they weren't honestly trusting in God and God alone. And so here God is reminding them of that. He's calling them out on the carpet for that. And then in verse 3 and 4, he says this, I declared the former things long ago. And they went forth from my mouth and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass. Why did he do that? He says here in verse 4, Because I know that you are obstinate. What does it mean to be obstinate? It means you don't listen to anybody. You're like a mule. You won't move unless you decide you want to move. No matter how much prodding. No matter how much whipping. You're stubborn. You're obstinate, he says. I know that you're obstinate. So I did this ahead of time. And not only that, he said, because I know that you're obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew. We have sinews in our body that connect the muscle tissue to the bones. Those are the things that, that work together to help us be able to... There's all kinds in the in shoulders and in the hips and in the back. And those sinews work together. But he's saying, yours are like iron. They're not flexible. They're unwilling to move. He says, I know this about you. And then he says, and your forehead is bronze. <laughs> you're a metal head. Only you're not listening to metal, heavy metal. He says, your head is made out of bronze. Judgment comes against you, and it's like you may as well be throwing a rock against a, a piece of metal because it has no effect. Do you hear anything here that God should love? Do you see yourself in this picture that God is painting here, that God should love? I hope so, because that's what the mystery is. That's what the mystery of this love is. Then he says in verse 5, he says, Therefore I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you, so that you would not say, My idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. In other words, he's saying, you can't give credit to anything else but me because I've told you ahead of time. You know who else said this? In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's somebody that actually says this. In Matthew 24, in Mark 13, and in Luke 21, Jesus actually says, I've told you everything ahead of time. 
so that when they happen, you'll know that it was me and you'll be reminded and you'll do what I'm telling you to do. In that instance, it was when you see the hordes coming in from Rome in A.D. 70, you're going to be reminded. The Holy Spirit will remind you of my words. I've told you this ahead of time. You're to scatter. Get out of there. And you know what history tells us? Josephus, the historian, tells us that that's exactly what happened. Believers in Christ Jesus escaped because they saw it coming. And those who were not believers were left behind and were slaughtered. They were slaughtered. But the believers got away and they lived. So it's the same kind of an idea. I've told you everything ahead of time so that you can't proclaim that your idols have done them or that your molten images or any of those things. The Lord alone declares and decrees and executes His will according to His word. When God has spoken something, you can bet. You can bet everything you have and you know that it's going to come to pass if He has said it. That's how sure His word is. When he says, this is the way that it's going to be, and if you know 100% that that's from him, you can bet everything with confidence. You can work the house. Say, hey, I'm betting everything. Why? Because Jesus said, this is the way that it's going to be. We can trust in his word. Verses 6 through 8. He says, you have heard... Look at all this, and you, will you not declare it? In other words, he's saying, look, when you see all these things happening, will you not declare that I'm the one who told you all these things? And we know that it's true because history tells us that the people there in Babylon brought the writings, their writings, this part of Scripture, they brought them to Cyrus. Cyrus is still here in the backdrop. Don't forget him. He's a historical figure, and he was, a, he was going to play a very pivotal and very important part in the people's lives. And that's actually what took place in history. They brought this to Cyrus, and they said, hey, did you know that you were in our book and that God spoke about you? And when he saw it, he's pretty blown away. And he actually did everything that God commanded him to do. And he set the people free eventually. So he says, he says here in uh, verse 6, And will you not declare it, that I'm the one who told you this thing? And he says, I proclaim to you new things from this time, and even hidden things which you have not known. Now he's saying, now I'm going to do some new stuff, but I ain't telling you what it is. So... Now when you see new things, you're not knowing where it's coming from, but there are going to be some new things. But I'm not telling you this time. I'm just going to do it suddenly. Even hidden things which you have not known. By the way, Paul hints at this in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says that God has made known to us, the church, the mysteries of the Old Testament. The mysteries of the church that were written in the Holy Writ that people never saw until it was revealed in the church. So many of the things that are in the Old Testament were 
concealed until the New Testament church began and began to reveal many of these things. Paul understood that this was the case. And when the people were going to be released, history tells us that they were actually now sincere. And by sincere, I mean they weren't just um, sincere, but they were still wrong. They were actually genuine. When they came back to Jerusalem, when they were brought back to their own land from Babylon, they were no longer, for the most part, hypocrites. They learned to trust in God. You know why? What he's saying here. Everything that I said that would come to pass has come to pass. And they came to know that, that he was trustworthy. How many of you have had instances in your life where you had no other source or resource and all you had was left was to trust in God and that He came through in ways that you just never expected. And it wasn't in your timing, it was in His, and you're just like blown away. I think every one of us can say, yeah, I've seen that happen in my own life. Same kind of a deal. Verse 7, and they created now, they are created now and not long ago. And before today you have not heard of them. So that you will not say, behold, I knew them. What's he saying? Well, you're not really going to change. You're going to change, but you ain't going to really change. You're still going to have that tendency. You're still going to have that. How many of us have that... Uh, that uh, awful old B.C. era carcass that comes out every once in a while. Just drags, just drags around you all, the, and it's just a, a nuisance. Same kind of idea. Every once in a while, he's going he's gonna to creep up. He's supposed to be dead and buried. He's supposed to be dead and gone. And every once in a while, he shows his ugly face, or her ugly face. Right? Same idea here. Um, he says, so that you will not say, behold, I knew them. He's going to keep them hidden until the last minute. Then he says in verse 8, have you not heard, have you not known? Even from long ago, your ear has not been open, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. Everything in this passages, in these passages, tells me there's no reason why God should love these people. And it tells me that there's no reason why God should love us. None. Zero. Because this is really speaking of us, in a sense. The evidence speaks for itself. If only they would believe God's Word. The new things, the hidden things. Um, there is an era of salvation and a kingdom of righteousness that began with the restoration from exile. But these prophecies look forward to Christ's coming and growth of His kingdom in its fullness. That's really what's being spoken of here. This spiritual Israel of the salvation that God and God alone would bring in a way that people never expected. Um, several weeks ago I talked about uh, um, a gentleman that I met and uh, he's a skeptic. And that's one of the comments that he made when I started to explain and express some of, the, some of the features of the gospel to him. 
and with the questions that he has. He says, this story doesn't make sense. Why would God allow this story to fold out like it did? I said, that's precisely the reason. So nobody could take credit for it. We, from our human perspective, we see this story as impossible. It's incredible. It's incredulous. It's crazy. It, it doesn't, doesn't work. And by the way, in, in passing, you know, keep, uh, keep old Joe Rogan in, in your prayers. He's had one, one Christian after another that just making him think about things that he's never thought about. And even in one uh, sense, one guy that he was talking to, I don't know who he is, and I don't know whether he was a Christian, but he was talking about this new uh, digital currency that is quickly coming upon us. And this guy who's just speaking, all of a sudden, as he's talking about this and how worried about it and how scary that it just really is because he's studied what China is doing with it. And then he says as he's talking, he's talking in a normal sense, and then he goes, it almost sounds like the mark of the beast. Literally, he's just kind of like, I really don't want to say this, but... No. And Joe Rogan goes, well, what's, what's that? What's, what are you talking about? And so he kind of started to explain to him. And he read from the scriptures. He read those things. He read what it says in Revelation. And Joe Rogan had some expletives that I can't repeat. But he was blown away. He's like, that sounds exactly like what's going on. It's what they want to do. I'm like, yeah, go figure that. Maybe the Bible knows something. Because maybe God is the one who has spoken these things. But here the people are going to have a place where they will finally come to, some of them will come to believe. Um, but there's still this hypocrisy that they're dealing with. And it's a dangerous thing. There is a remnant that will, that will return that is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 10. Uh, verses 20 through 24. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 through 24, it reads as following. If you remember from our going through Isaiah here, in Isaiah 10, there's this little instance where uh, Isaiah breaks in and says, Now in that day the remnant of Israel, notice the remnant, and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but they will truly rely on the Lord, on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. In this case, it was the Assyrian people, not the Babylonians, but the same idea implied here is applied to the Babylonian um, exiles. It says, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And for though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. Meaning a small amount. How many of you had uh, a carpet put in your house and are dealt with the plague of remnants? Like, what do I do with this? Pieces of carpet that are left behind that the guy's like, they're yours. You deal with them. If you're smart, you'll just say, here's 20 bucks. Go get rid of them for me. Some of them, I've seen people utilize, but they're remnants. They're small pieces. They're, they're, in other words, it's not going to be this large amount. It's only going to be a small people. It's kind of like what Jesus said. Wide 
is the path that leads to destruction, and many there are who are on it. Narrow is the path that leads to salvation, and few there are that find it. Same kind of idea, it's just a remnant. It's not everybody on the face of the earth. He says, a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will, within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Those are words we need to pay attention to. Thus says the Lord. One that is decreed, the Lord of, excuse me, thus says the Lord of, of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his, his uh, staff against you the way that Egypt did. He says, don't worry about it, I got this. In one of the, the commentaries, the Asbury Bible commentary, it says this, the prophet attacks Israel, Israel's relationship to Yahweh. Why? Because it's artificial. It's a good word. It's hypocritical. It's artificial. It's fake. They call upon him. They use his name. They swear by his name. They call themselves by Jerusalem. But it's all artificial. It's not real. It's like I was saying when I was a kid. I called myself a Christian. Was I a Christian? By no means. I was far from being a Christian. I was in a Christian home. I've been raised by two Christians, but I was by no means a Christian. Same idea here. It was artificial. Their relationship was characterized by stubbornness, a propensity for idolatry, obstinacy, hubris, deafness, they were deaf on purpose. They just refused to listen. And long-standing rebellion. In spite of this, Yahweh, for his own sake, will not allow Israel to be cut off. Kind of the same way that he does today and operates today. It's because of his namesake. The hypocrisy that this implies is displayed in the book of John. Even the people in the first century, when Jesus was actually physically present and teaching in this remote land that we call Israel, though He was there amongst the people and He was performing all these miracles, these miraculous feats that no one else had ever witnessed or done or beheld before, only having heard of some of them from the Old Testament, and those Old Testament miracles were few in number compared to what Jesus was doing. He was almost seemingly doing it on a regular basis, which, by the way, is not the norm for us in the church. The miraculous does happen, but it's not the normative. And we shouldn't expect the miracle all the time. We should leave that up to God and trust Him with that. So in John chapter 8, you have this example of Jesus being in the midst of the people. He's preaching to them. He's speaking with them. 
And they, there's something amazing that kind of happens here. In John chapter 8, we're going to be in uh, verse 31. Jesus has been explaining to them that he's from the Father. And that he's not from here. That he's from somewhere else. And actually, let's, uh, let's back up to verse 27. And they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then, then you will know that I am. Powerful. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now listen, this is important. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. The very next verse. Therefore, Jesus was saying to them, to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring, and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? It just said in the previous verse, they had come to know him. Now all of a sudden they're questioning his very words. He says, if you believe my word, then you're my disciple. And then you shall be free. And they're like, what? We've never been a slave, man. We, we, we don't need to be free. What are you talking about? These were the ones who came to believe him. This is... Bizarre. So it remains, are they the ones who continue to believe after the fact? Don't know. They bring up this question. Verse 34 in John chapter 8, he says, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So that's what he was talking about. Sin makes you a slave. Period. End of story. It's big giant chains. I saw a, bit, a picture of a guy who was just kind of crouching there on, you know, in this field. And this, he's like a link in a chain. And this chain was enormous. It was as big as him, if not bigger, the big links. And it, it was a picture that said, this is sin. And it was like, man, that is so right on. Because you have these huge links of this chain that is connected to you and you're part of it. And it takes a supernatural God to come in and break that chain. And until it's done, you are a slave. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you sin, you are a slave to sin. And then he says, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain. In other words, you need to go from that slavery and you need to become part of the family. And you can't do that. Because it's not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing that only God does. And then he says this, If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Hallelujah. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus said, when you lift me up, you'll recognize that I am. When he's put on the cross, people would come to know he is. And what is the witness of that? 
on the day that he was crucified. The centurion who was there and saw all these things happening, he was pricked within his conscience and his heart. And I don't know if he was convicted of a sin, but I'm pretty sure that he was because he looked up and he saw this person on his cross. He said, truly, this was the Son of God. And I always hear that in John Wayne's voice from that movie so long ago. He witnessed. He believed. He's like, this guy is the very Son of God. He's not just anyone. He's not like these other two thieves. He's really the Son of God. And then he says, I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Ooh, that's pretty tough words right there. My word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. You ready for this? They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. As it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Leaves him hanging for a minute. They said, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth from uh, and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. Because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? And here's the important part. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. They were hypocrites. They said, we believe in God. We, we know Abraham. We know all about the history. We know all this stuff. They were hypocrites. Here the very Son of God is in their midst. And Jesus says, you're of your father. The devil. In other words, you're liars just like he is. Because the fruit doesn't fall very far from the tree. And he's saying, you're of your father, the devil. I'm telling you the truth and you won't receive it. Remember what I spoke last week? That part of the reason why they were going to practicing their witchcraft and doing all these things, they were denying the reality of what is true. And they were practicing witchcraft because they had not received the love of the truth, as it says in 2 Thessalonians. And because of that, God says they're going into judgment because they have not received the love of the truth. It's dangerous 
to be hypocritical spiritually. If you are trusting in Christ, then live it. Do it. Be what you say that you are. There's a danger in that. But that's why Jesus came, to remove that hypocrisy so that we don't have to practice religion. We often say in the evangelical world, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And it really is. If you read John chapter 15, you'll see that it really is about relationship. Our communion with God. God sent His one and only Son so that we could be saved, so that we could be transformed, so that we could be made new, so that we don't have to be hypocrites. Do we fail at times? I won't have anybody hold up their hands, but I'm sure that we would be in 100% agreement. Some of us would hold up our two hands and our feet, lie on our back. That's why Jesus came. He came to bear our sin, just like the song that we sang. He came to bear our shame. He came to face the wrath of God so that we didn't have to. And so we commemorate what Jesus has done on the cross through the communion. And we remember what Jesus has done for us. And He's done this great and awesome thing. In 1 Corinthians, and if you remember the last time we met there at the park, I talked about receivership and how important it is and how integral it is and how inextricable that it is to the Christian life that we must receive Him. Not enough to believe. We have to receive Him. Because Paul says, that which I received, I'm giving it to you. And remember what Paul received. He, re he received rebuke. He received reproof. He received new teaching. He received the truth. He received, ultimately, salvation because he received Christ. And that's the most important thing is we have to receive Christ. And Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, he says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. <clears throat> and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we're doing. As we commemorate the communion, the Last Supper, we also participate in remembering His death. Until when? Until He comes. So we do this on a continuing basis. 
And that's why we can do it as often as we want. Some people do it every day. I know I've heard and read of some people that do this every day. Some people do it once a month like we do. Some people do it every couple of weeks. Some people do it only once a year. How sad is that? But he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, here's the warning, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats judgment, uh, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. And also what's being spoken here is judge yourself or examine yourself to make sure you're of the faith. That's one of the most important things. Make sure you're a believer, a follower, a liver. Not like a beef liver. Someone who's living out the Christian life by faith in the flesh. Sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Because we live out our faith in the reality in which we live through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your words. Thank you for the warnings that you give over and over and over again. Help us to not be hypocrites. Help us to not be spiritual hypocrites. And help us... Help us to be able to share your word, the gospel, amongst our world amongst people around us amongst the lost that they might come to know you and be saved father we thank you for all that you have provided for you are the giver of life and you are the grantor of life everlasting and all of these things are found only in christ jesus our lord who gave his life that we might live help us to die to sin and to live to christ And help us to share the gospel in power, in the power of your Holy Spirit. So that we can see people set free. Free from the bondage of sin, from the slavery of sin. Lord, I pray that if someone is listening online, that has understood that they're hypocrites, that they would repent. And that they would ask for forgiveness. And that they would trust in what Jesus has done on the cross. And that he truly did give his life on the cross. And that he was buried. And that he rose again on the third day, all according to scripture. Do what you do, Lord. Thank you that we can remember that Jesus died so that we may live. We thank you, Lord, and we're looking forward to that time when he returns. We praise you, we bless you, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' holy name, amen, amen.